Okay. We want to continue our studies now in why we hold to the King James Bible. And we're looking at just taking a very brief survey through church history to see how the Bible has come down to us, the major things that have happened along the way that apply to this subject of Bible texts and versions. And so we come to the, we looked at the early centuries after the apostles and how that there was a great attack upon the scriptures and an attempt by the devil to just destroy the thing. Of course, that's not possible, but he gave it his best shot. And then the 4th to the 10th centuries, the traditional text, the original text, wins the battle very clearly. And so there was the manuscripts over in Egypt and other places that were corrupted and shortened and mutilated in various ways, and especially they contained attacks upon the person of Christ. But we come to the 4th to the 10th centuries, and it's very clear, very clear to everybody on any side of this issue that our old traditional text won the battle. And so we have the six major lessons under this time period. The battle against the apostolic New Testament was fierce, unrelenting, but God, who gave the Scriptures, kept it. That's very clear in the record. Number two, missionary work advanced after the persecutions ended under Constantine, the Roman persecutions, and missionary work advanced greatly after that. Number three, during the period of the great missionary activity, the Alexandrian text was rejected with great finality. It disappeared, basically, and uh, from the churches. And at that point, we also need to consider the issue of hand copying of manuscripts and uh, how that affects the history of our text. The era of the conversion of the unsealed manuscripts to the cursive style, very important time, ninth century, ninth century after Christ. We'll show you what that is. But it was a very important time and event in the transmission of our Bible. And then the Byzantine Empire and its role in the transmission of the Bible. So we've seen that there was this great fierce attack. Jack Mormon died a couple years ago, but he wrote some good material on the preservation of the text. He said there was a couple, there was a struggle over the text of Scripture in those early centuries, but there was a clear winner. Absolutely, everybody agrees with that. And we show some examples of the missionary work that followed the uh, legalization of Christianity under Constantine, the 4th century, the Gothic Bible, the Sullivanic Bible, and these were Bibles that were basically textually like our Bibles, the old Protestant Baptist Bibles. And then, and, and the Alexandrian text was just Wholesale rejected. Not used by hardly anybody. The only churches that did continue to use in some way the Alexandrian, the Egyptian manuscripts was the Coptic version in Egypt of all places. 
But the churches everywhere rejected it. And that's why this is called the majority text, because if you go back into history, the vast majority of the extant manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, and quotations from the preachers and their writings, it's all received text. And so we need to consider the issue of hand copying of manuscripts, and we give a study on that. As it affects Bible text and versions, we, we talk about the different types of material that were used. And then the two forms of manuscripts. The unseal, also called magiscules, but it was written in all capital letters with no space between the words. And imagine how hard that would be to read. And we give an example in your text in English from Philippians 1, 1 and 2. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. It's very hard to read, even when you know what it says. <laughs> but that's the way those manuscripts are written. They were all caps in Greek and no spaces between the words and no punctuation. And there were scrolls and there were codexes, and we talk about that a little bit. We talk about the error, kind of errors that would creep into hand copying. Sure, there were errors. Men are, men are fallible. And then there were heretics messing around with stuff. And we talk about that. And we give a project in the assignments for this course to do your, write your own copy of John 1, uh, for, uh, John 1 for first three chapters of John. Make your own copy. And then go back and check carefully, and you'll probably find you made mistakes. And then if we all did that as a group, just a small group, it'd be so easy to correct. Even if we didn't know the original, it'd be easy to correct the original, because the majority would be right. And uh, that gives us a good example of what was happening in those centuries. Now, the conversion of the unsealed manuscripts to the con to the cursive. So cursive is, I'm sorry, I skipped over that. Cursive is, and also called minuscule, but written in the modern style with uppercase and lowercase and spaces between the words, which is what we have today in English. And there was a transition in the ninth century from the all uppercase to the Magiscules, the cursive, lowercase, uppercase. And that was a major turning point. Think about it. I mean, the, the, the scholars are going, are going to do this, and they're going to pick the, very, the, one, the manuscripts they believe are the very best. And they had a lot more evidence in the 9th century than we have in the 21st. There was all kinds of manuscripts that still existed that are gone forever today. And so they are going to pick the ones they believe are the very best manuscripts, the ones representing the original manuscripts, to convert massive projects, to sit there and recopy those ones that are written in all caps, no punctuation or spacing, to manually transcribe those into the cursive. Major, major job. So they're going to pick, just common, common sense tells you, they're going to pick the best they have for that job. 
And that happened in the ninth century. And John Bergon made that great observation as to what an important time that was in the history of the Bible. Because the Bible was being preserved over in the Greek-speaking world by that time, which was over toward Constantinople, the Eastern Roman Empire, called the Byzantine Empire. Because, anyway, Constantinople was formerly called Byzantium. And Greek had dropped out of use in the western part of the Roman Empire, but was still kept over in the eastern side. And they were the ones that were really watching over all these Greek manuscripts over in Constantinople area era. And John Bergon made the observation, great scholar he was, traveled all over Europe and looking in these old dark monasteries and libraries and finding for himself old Greek manuscripts and great scholar. And he, 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 uh, he made the observation that this is a very important time when they trans, trans, you know, laded, transcribed these ones, the transliteration process in the ninth century. He said, for it implies that just the oldest, best, and most customary manuscripts came to us in the new uniform of the minuscule script. Ah, that's very important. And so, the more you would know about Bible versions and texts, the more important this would become for you. Because they say, yeah, okay, there's a majority still existing of all these Greek manuscripts, 5,000 or whatever, and yeah, they're majority, but that majority doesn't mean anything because they're all were corrupt to start with. Well, who says? Well, the Alexandrian text says, because you compare them to Alexandrian manuscripts, and they're not, they're not the same. But the men that did all the hard work would tell us that they rejected those. They didn't believe they were the Word of God. And the ones they did pass on to us as the majority was the Word of God. They believed that. And then you have the Byzantine empires we've mentioned which kept the Greek manuscripts over in the Eastern Roman Empire from the 5th to the 15th centuries. And you need to study some church history uh, because you can understand these things better as to what we're talking about. If you don't study much, you don't, well, of course, know anything. But the Greek language <laughs> began to die out. We don't know anything until we learn it. The Greek language began to die out in the Western Roman Empire. And then the Western Roman Empire was overrun by the pagans from the north. But that wasn't the end of the Roman Empire. It continued for a thousand years in the east. It was a great empire. The Roman Empire didn't end when the pagans overran it and conquered Rome. And uh, it just continued. And they kept all these Greek manuscripts. They were still Greek-speaking people. And they had these manuscripts, and they converted them from the all uppercase to the cursive. And then they were conquered by the Muslims. They were conquered by the Muslims in 1453, the Eastern Roman Empire, the capital in Constantinople. And the Muslims had tried for centuries to destroy that city, and it had an impregnable three walls, and it had been proven to be impregnable, but not to a big cannon. And that's when the Muslims got themselves some really, I mean, huge cannons, big 
big as this room. Not like that, but in length. And they parked those cannons out in front of those walls, and those walls began to fall down. And they did fall down. And Constantinople fell. And that's where all these priceless Greek manuscripts have been preserved, and some other places. But, they, but scholars took the best of their Greek manuscripts and fled over to Western Europe with them to escape the Muslims. At the very... The, 1453 is when Constantinople fell, and that was the end of the Eastern Byzantine Roman Empire that had preserved the Greek manuscripts. 1453. Scholars went, carried tre- those treasures over to Western Europe where there was still safety from the Muslims. In 14, that's exactly the time that printing was invented. Exactly. 1453, uh, Gutenberg printed in 1455 the first Bible, the Latin Bible, the first Bible of movable type. And the Hebrew Bible was printed and the Greek uh, New Testament was printed early 1500s, just a few years after this using those exact Greek manuscripts that had been uh, preserved in the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, all this is simple to understand, to me, for a Bible believer, because I see the hand of God in everything. I don't just see man. I see God in everything. He's the king. He sits as a ruler upon the circle of the earth. He's actually in control, and of elections, too. Of course he is. He's either God or he's not. The Bible says he's very big God. So he's in control of these things, and especially pertaining to the Bible. And so they just so happened to have certain Greek texts to print, to print for the first time. That wasn't so happened. That was God. One of the most major events in the history of man was the printing of the Greek New Testament. One of the most major events in the whole history of man, absolutely without a doubt, Surely the hand of God was there. Of course it was there. So it wasn't happenstance. And, and, uh, and they just happened to have these manuscripts. And, no, it was the hand of God. And then you have the Inquisition era. Major era in the transmission of the Bible. 12th to the 17th century. Of course, these are overlapping a bit. But the persecution of the Bible. Persecution, horrible, terrible, mostly unknown today, mostly unknown even by Bible-believing people. Rome did everything she could to keep the Bible out of the hands of the common people. Rome did everything she could to keep the Bible out of the hands of the common people. Rome has never been a friend of the Bible. Roman Catholic Church we're talking about. Never been a friend of the Bible. Never, ever, ever, never. Not today either. The Roman Catholic Church is, at the, is a major part of the modern version thing. Major part of the United Bible Societies. Roman Catholic priest involved in, uh, involved in the third edition of the United Bible Societies Greek New Testament. Carlo Martini, a Catholic cardinal, was one of the editors of the third edition of the, of, the, of the Greek New Testament that was commonly used by everybody, including fundamentalists. A Roman Catholic cardinal. That tells me something. Yeah, it tells me something big. Why? Because of the history. In the year 1215, 
Pope Innocent III issued a law commanding, quote, that they be seized for trial and penalties who engage in the translation of the sacred volumes. Yeah? Really? Who do you think you are? I'm the Pope. Don't you know? That was an actual law. The first of hundreds issued by the Popes. All the way up to the 19th century, into the 20th century, in fact. Council of Toulouse, I guess that is, 1229, forbade the laity to possess or read the vernacular translations of the Bible. Really? Who do you think you are? That's what they said. They decreed that. I mean, on penalty of death. The Council of Tarragona, 1234, ordered all vernacular versions to be brought to the bishop to be burned. 1483, the Inquisitor General, Thomas Torquemada, the Spanish Inquisition, they prohibited King Ferdinand and his queen, the Roman Catholic king and queen, prohibited all under the severest pains from translating the sacred scripture into the vulgar tongues or from using it when translated by others. You can't even read it. In England, also, which was Roman Catholic in this era, until Henry VIII, laws were passed by the Catholic authorities in England in 14, beginning in 1408. The Constitutions of Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Anglican, well, at that time, it was still the Catholic Church, 1408. Henry didn't come along until the 1500s. And we know about his wives. We therefore decree and ordain that no man shall hereafter by his own authority translate any text of the Scripture into English or any other tongue. Yeah? Wow. And so, what's that all about? Well, Wycliffe, John Wycliffe had just translated the Bible into English. And he had died and escaped. They wanted to kill him, but he died before they could kill him. So, they dug up his bones a few, couple decades later and burned them. There. That's how much they hated the Bible translators. The Roman Catholic Church. Pope Leo X, very famous because he was associated with Luther. 1513 to 1521. He called the Fifth Lateran Church, I'm sorry, the Fifth Lateran Council. Lateran, Lateran is a palace, the old papal palace in Rome. The Lateran Church. Over the front of the church in Latin, it says, the mother of all churches on the earth. Professes to be the mother of this church and the head of Latran. They called a council that met in that palace. Therefore, forever, therefore, forever thereafter, no one should be allowed to print any book or writing without a previous examination to be testified by manual subscription by the papal vicar that's the Pope, and master of the sacred palace in Rome. That's the Pope. For neglect of this, the punishment was excommunication, 
the loss of the addition, which was to be burned, a fine of 100 ducats, very heavy fine, and suspension from business for a year. It's a penalty to print any book without permission of the Pope. Those restrictions were repeated by the Council of Trent in 1546. It shall not be lawful for anyone to print or to have printed any books whatsoever dealing with sacred doctrinal matters without the name of the author or in the future to sell them or even to have them in possession unless they first have been examined and approved by the ordinary under penalty or anathema, curse, and fine, and blah, blah, blah. So they did that, and they did it century after century, and we give quotes from other popes here. And uh, Pope Clement the Eighth, 1605, Benedict XIV, he ended his in 1758, Pope Pius VII, we're talking about the 1800s now, he was the first to condemn the Bible societies. Condemn the Bible societies? They're printing Bibles without any notes or comments and trying to give them to the people for free or for very cheap. He's con he, this is what he said. He wrote a bull, a papal bull against it in June 29th, 1816. He said, this practice, distributing the Bible, is a most crafty device by which the very foundations of religion are undermined. No, Roman Catholic Church is undermined, if you read the Bible. If the sacred scriptures, he said, were allowed in the vulgar tongue, the common language, everywhere without discrimination, more detriment than benefit would arise. I forbid it. Pope Leo XII forbade it. He said, if the sacred scriptures be everywhere indiscriminately published, more evil than advantage will arise. Pope Gregory XVI, we're talking about the 1800s, condemning the Bible societies. Pope Pius IX, he said the Bible societies are renewing the crafts of the ancient heretics. Pope Leo XIII, whose reign ended in the 20th century. He said all versions of the vernacular, even by Catholics, are altogether prohibited unless approved by the Holy See, which is the Vatican, the Pope. So wherever in those centuries, wherever the Roman Catholic Church held power, and they held, widely held power, they forbade the translation, printing, and reading of the Bible in any language other than Latin. Nobody read Latin, so it doesn't matter. That wasn't important to them. And we give, we give some quotes about what was happening in Catholic countries in the 20th century, early 20th century. Between December 1907, February 1908, a diligent search was made to determine how many Bibles were available in Catholic Ireland. And not a portion of the Bible was available in bookshops in all these towns. And we give quotes about that. They did their best. Keep the Bible out of the hands of the people. And they have not changed. Roman Catholic Church has not a lover of the truth. The Waldenses are an example of what occurred in that period. And we give, they were Bible-believing separatist Christians. 
And we give examples, quotes from history, from their own historians, of the terrible, horrible persecutions. They had a Bible in the Ramat language, which is the predecessor of French, the language of the troubadours. And they had their Bibles, and they hand-copied them, and they actually trained missionaries and sent out missionaries to Europe and up in England, and they carried these little hand-copied portions of Scripture, laboriously copied, and uh, would, in secret, as much as possible, try to distribute them. And the Catholic Church was so effective in, in persecuting, destroying those Scriptures, that only about five copies have survived, partial copies, mostly. Who knows how many hundreds were copied, at least portions, were copied by God's people in all those centuries. It's all gone. When Oliver Cromwell, when he was the um, head of the government, they had killed Charles, you know, cut his head off. And so Cromwell was the head of the government. And uh, Cromwell was an interesting man, but he believed in religious liberty, and he, believed, and he helped, tried his best to help persecuted Christians. And he sent his representative over to the Waldenses in, in Italy. And they were being hard, whole villages were being destroyed and burned and mothers and children destroyed. And he sent his representative. And uh, that representative did his best to collect any Waldensian material literature that was still available that survived the persecutions. And, it, and it's a tiny little library basically, and he took it back to England, and today it's in the Cambridge Library. And uh, he, uh, and it was just a small part that had survived all those centuries. Pathetic little, because it was all destroyed by the Roman Catholic Church, as well as the people. Ah, the history of the Waldenses and others. Something we need to know. So we give some of that here. <coughs> and we give examples here of how the Bible was persecuted by Rome. The English Bible. John Wycliffe, we've already mentioned him. Roman Catholic Church. He translated the first English Bible. Bless his heart. He was an Oxford scholar. He devoted his life to translating the Bible into the language of his people. And at that time, English was a very ragged language. They didn't speak English in Parliament. They didn't speak English at Oxford. And uh, English was not widely used. Used by the very common folks. And it was not a settled language. And he wanted to put the Bible in the languages of people. And he did. And he was hated. He was hounded. The popes cursed him. And one thing that protected him was there were two popes. And then there were three popes for a while, during Wycliffe's life. And they were so busy hurling curses at each other, they didn't have time to mess with Wycliffe. And that's a fact of history. They hated him, and they tried to kill him. And they would have, but God <coughs> protected him, and then they dug up his bones. They hated him so much, dug up his bones. I've been to his old church, Lutterworth, and seen that little stream where they threw the ashes after they burned it. William Tyndale. Roman Catholic Church burned him at the stake in Belgium. I've been to that place. The Spanish Bible, we give examples of what the Roman Catholic Church did in regard to the Spanish people, 
and how horribly, terribly they persecuted them and burned those and tried to distribute the Bible in Spanish. The traditional Greek text was preserved among Bible-believing churches. And so, that's the text that during this era very definitely was preserved. So we've looked at the era of the 12th to the 17th centuries and how that Rome tried to keep the Bible out of the hands of the common people. And even the textual critics admit that the traditional text of the Reformation, this text, our Bible, was the text in common use throughout that period. And we give two major quotes from them by Bruce Metzger, and so they admit this. He said the Byzantine form of the text, Byzantine, the old <clears throat> Eastern Roman Empire, the Greek text from Antioch, from Syria, that was kept as the majority text among the Greek manuscripts, was translated from the unseals, the old all caps, to the cursive. That text, Bruce Metzger, the greatest authority on textual criticism of the last generation, was generally regarded as the authoritative form of text and was the one most widely circulated and accepted. They admit that. And so, a summary of the evidence. You have the testimony from these centuries. You have the testimony of the Greek manuscripts. The vast majority of extant Greek New Testament manuscripts support the traditional text, received text, majority text, like 98% of them, of the roughly 5,400 that exist, that have survived through the centuries. The Greek uncials, we have the testimony of them. There are not very many of them. About 263 that have survived, dating from the 2nd to the 12th to the 11th centuries. Most of those are the traditional text. Then you have the Greek Minya schools, which is the cursives, manuscripts. The bat, there are roughly nine, uh, 2,937 of them extant, and they almost all represent our Bible. Then you have the testimony of Greek lectionaries, and those were portions of scripture that were used in the Greek churches for their services. And so they would copy out, like we copy scriptures into the bulletins or a memory verse, and they would copy portions of scripture and they would use it in their services. And by that way, that part of scripture, those parts were preserved. There's 2,280 of those extant. They're all, uh, they're all like our Bible. The majority to receive the traditional text. Then we have the testimony of the Greek Byzantine Empire, as we've already seen. And uh, we've already looked at that a little bit. Then you have the testimony of the ancient versions. So that is a witness. The old translations coming down through the centuries. And the vast majority of them represent our Bible. And we give examples of that. The old Latin, the Syriac Pashita, the Georgian, the Gothic, the Slavonic, 
the Ramat, that is the Waldensian, the German, Old German, Old German, and the Old English, which was John Wycliffe. And so all of that witness, all of that testimony, and the testimony of ancient Christian writings, which is ancient preachers, the writings of preachers who were quoting the Bible in their writings. And so we can see there what kind of Bible are they quoting. And the witness, that witness, is a major witness. And John Burgon did the greatest research into that that's ever been done. He examined thousands of ancient writings, looking for what scripture they're quoting, cataloging it, indexing it, organizing it. And actually that work is, resides in the British, libra, uh, British muse, Library today, but it's in Latin and won't do you much good. But he did it. No one's ever done anything like that. And so he was able to see what kind of Bible are they quoting through the centuries. And it was mostly this. All the evidence, the vast majority of what we have that has survived uh, supports our Bible. Nobody denies that on any side of the issue. And so, ah, John Bergen, his work was magnificent. He gathered 86,000 quotations from 76 writers who died before A.D. 400. Now, that was a magnificent piece of work. No internet. No internet. Just going to these old libraries and museums and things and digging this stuff up. And then he's got to be able to read it in dark light. This is before electricity. And in these dark museums and uh, libraries and things. What tedious, difficult work. He wasn't buried. He devoted his whole life to that. I thank the Lord for that man. And he showed us what kind of Bible has come down to us. He showed us that. And this testimony right here, what page is this on? John Burgon's testimony about the text that was preserved during these dark ages. 94. Some of you have a different one. Now here, this, so this is an authoritative, I mean, no one has ever done this kind of research that John Bergen did. And he said, okay, what kind of Bible has come down to us through the centuries? Call this text Erasmian. Erasmus was the man that first printed the Greek New Testament. Not long after the invention of printing. Call it Erasmian. Or Complutensian, and that was a polyglot Bible, anyway, that had the received text printed. The text of Stephens or of Beza or of the Elzevers, and those were printers. Those were men that printed the first Greek New Testaments. Call it received, call it traditional, or whatever name you please. The fact remains that a text has come down to us which is attested by a general consensus of ancient copies, ancient fathers, ancient versions. Now that is an authoritative, irrefutable statement by a man that believes in divine preservation and is, was not brainwashed. In fact, he rejected, hated, and fought against modern textual criticism theories because it's not based on faith. And so he was a warrior. I thank God for that man. And this was his consensus, a man that has looked into the history of the Bible 
as much as any man ever has in modern times. There it is. And I'm not that kind of scholar. There's not such a scholar alive today, in fact. No, but here he is for us. Here he is for us. Very powerful statement. Where are we? And we're going to stop there.